That kind of attempt to reach a compromise is just not available to Biden anymore. Insurrections be damned, Joseph Biden is now the President of the United States, so it's time to talk about the policies of the new administration. Now, the last president, as you might have noticed, was not too much of a policy guy. He preferred to fire off an angry tweet and engage in as much drama as possible rather than actually governing the country. And this combined with a general kind of Republican belief that the best thing that the federal government can do is just get out of people's way to mean that there wasn't too much policy to discuss in the last four years. So it's nice to be able to talk about substantive matters again, rather than Trump's latest attempt to heat up the culture war or his angry tweets. But time is limited. Democrats currently control all the branches of government that they need to make law, but history suggests that they'll probably lose control of one or both of the houses of Congress in the midterms of 2022. So they need to plow ahead quickly with their agenda while they still have the political capital to do so. In this episode, I'm going to talk about three of the most interesting policy areas that the new administration is going to be focused on. Immigration, the environment and efforts to tackle the coronavirus and rejuvenate the American economy. So if you want to understand the issues that are going to be dominating American politics for the next year, this episode is the place to get up to speed. As always, we hope you enjoy the show and remember you can always contact us with any comments or questions on producer at america-explained.com. So let's start by talking about immigration. Immigration was of course one of the most controversial parts of Trump's agenda, some of his most controversial actions involved immigration policy. So that started with the infamous wall, which was a kind of physical symbol of how he felt about immigration and and the message he wanted to send to the rest of the world about the fact that under his administration, America was not open to the idea of immigration. This continued with policies like the Muslim ban, like family separation at the border, where children were taken away from their parents as a way of uh, trying to deter people from coming to the United States, and it was also combined with very, very aggressive deportation of undocumented persons within the United States itself. So Biden was always going to be under a lot of pressure to move very quickly to undo this legacy of Trump's, and also to try to make some more permanent changes to immigration policy in a way that might finally kind of shelve and put to rest some of these long-running issues. Particularly, what's going to happen to the estimated 11 million undocumented persons present in the United States, including that group of them called Dreamers, who are people who were brought to the United States by their parents or someone else when they were minors, when they were children. This is one example of where a serious policy discussion really stopped under the Trump administration. Trump was always interested in, you know, using immigration as a way of scaring his supporters into supporting him. So portraying immigrants as dangerous and as this kind of threat to America. And, you know, there was no real discussion of what actually to do about all of the immigrants who are present in the US. Clearly, the the ethical and the practical challenges of deporting 11 million people makes that impossible. So actually, for a long time before Trump, you know, before Trump kind of put serious conversation of this topic on ice for four years, which is kind of what he did, before then, there had been a long-running debate in the US about how do we provide some route to stability, some route to more permanent status for this group of people, but also at the same time try to discourage further ways of immigration into the US. 
So previous attempts to, to reach a compromise on the immigration issue, and, and the last one of these was during the Obama administration, typically combined a path to citizenship for those currently present in the US with increased security at the border in order to try and deter future migrants from arriving in the US. So that kind of package, you know, it offered something to the left, which was very keen for moral reasons and practical reasons as well to normalize the status of immigrants. And it offered something to the right, which wanted to deter future waves of immigration. As I mentioned, the Obama administration is the last time that this was seriously attempted. This was in 2013, when Obama actually managed to get a bill doing both of these things through the Senate, but then it failed in the Republican-controlled House. And this was kind of the time when the, the, the grassroots rebellion over immigration was really growing in the Republican Party. So at the time, the House Majority Leader, who was a guy called Eric Cantor, lost a primary challenge against a very, very anti-immigrant challenger. And this just kind of put the spooks into the whole uh, Congressional Republican Party, and they turned against the idea of comprehensive immigration reform. Now, this is why, you know, you, you'll sometimes hear that Obama, his administration, deported a, a huge number of people, actually more people than Trump. And this is true. And one of the reasons for this was that the Obama administration was attempting to kind of demonstrate to Republicans, demonstrate to the right wing that it was serious about immigration enforcement as a way of persuading them to sign on to this legislative deal. And when that fell through in 2013, the Obama administration scaled back its deportation operations to a great extent. So once this kind of gamble to reach a historic agreement had failed, the Obama administration then moved towards a much more permissive policy on allowing undocumented persons to stay in the United States. That kind of attempt to reach a compromise is just not available to Biden anymore for two reasons. So the first reason is that the Republican Party today is, is different. So many of the Republican senators who were able to get behind Obama on that deal are now no longer in the Senate. They've retired or they've left because, you know, they weren't happy with the uh, direction the party was going under Trump. And there's no real evidence that there's appetite, especially with the Republican Party been in so much flux as it is today. People in that party are not going to want to adopt a pro-immigrant stance. You know, most Republican politicians are really terrified of the grassroots of their own party, which is thoroughly, you know, on board with this Trump project, this nativist project. So there's no real appetite for that kind of reform in the Republican Party today. But just as importantly, the politics of immigration have really changed on the left wing of American politics as well, and that's largely in reaction to Trump. So it would now not be politically feasible for a Biden, for instance, to really ramp up deportation operations as a way of trying to persuade Republicans that he was serious about immigration reform. That's just not something the Democratic Party of today would tolerate. The conversation in the party shifted so much during the Trump years towards the question of how do we protect the rights of immigrants from this onslaught they suffered from the Trump administration. And that's one reason why one of the first things Biden did when he came into office was that he announced a 100-day pause on deportations of most groups. It's going to be very difficult for his administration to carry out deportations because what the rank and file of his party wants to see is a policy that allows undocumented persons to normalize their status and stay in the United States. And that's why in his very first day in office, one of the first things that Biden did was that he announced a new bill to put forward to, to Congress 
that would provide a path to citizenship for all 11 million of the undocumented persons currently present in the United States. One of the really interesting things about this bill was that it didn't include any of the border measures, any of kind of the added security, the added coercive measures that have usually in the past been included in these immigration reform bills as an inducement to the right. So there's kind of a few ways of interpreting this bill that Biden's put before Congress. One of them, the cynic might say that he's put forward this bill understanding full well that there's very little chance of it getting through the Senate without, it's not going to be able to win Republican support, but he's just putting a marker down there to the left wing of his own party saying, look, I'm going to fight on this issue. I'm probably not going to succeed. But you can see from day one that my administration is committed to providing a path to citizenship for all the undocumented people in the country. Another possibility is that he thinks that perhaps during the legislative bargaining process, he can give some concessions to the Republicans. You know, he can add in the extra, extra border security measures. He can add in the extra de- deterrent to more immigrants coming to the US. And then this might enable him to win some re- Republican votes. But he doesn't want to start with that because he needs something to give away later in the negotiation. I tend to lean towards the former interpretation. I don't think it's very likely that we'll see a comprehensive immigration reform bill during this uh, Congress or this administration. And I think instead that what's going to be important are the measures that Biden can take using executive power. So Trump was able to carry out family separation, he was able to carry out the Muslim ban, all without actually having Congress do a single thing. He just used his power as president to change the way that immigration was enforced by executive agencies. And that's something that Biden's going to be able to do. So he can use executive power to to pretty much stop deportations or very, very much slow them down, perhaps limit them to just deportations of people who say have carried out a violent criminal offence. He can lift the Muslim ban. He's already done that. He can make sure that family separation never happens again. He's done that. He's ordered the government to make extra effort to reunite everyone who was separated under that policy. And he can also continue with policies that provide dreamers so that this is this group of people who came to the US illegally but as children with work permits and their own path to more permanent residency. And perhaps he could even expand programs like that for particular subsets of um, the immigrant population as well. The coronavirus also provides a reprieve of sorts for the administration on this, because actually at the moment the southern border is entirely closed, even to refugees, because of the coronavirus and, you know, fears of its spread over the border. So even though Biden has got rid of some of these really restrictive policies that Trump administration had about refugees, the southern border actually remains closed. So Biden isn't going to have to be confronted with the refugee issue too quickly because the public health consideration, which is currently leading to this closure of the southern border, will continue for some time into the coming year. But the politics of this are going to be really interesting going forward, and we shouldn't be surprised if we eventually see Biden clashing with the left wing of his own party over whether he's been aggressive enough, particularly in using executive action to attempt to provide a path to citizenship for the undocumented people currently present in the US. Now, of course, the danger with using executive action to do that is that the next president can just undo that. So only an act of Congress can really put this issue to rest, and it doesn't look to me like we're going to see one of those during this administration. So immigration is going to continue to be this really divisive, really difficult issue 
And of course, caught in the middle of that are these millions and millions of people who are currently present in the United States without legal status and all of the benefits and protections that that brings. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. The Biden administration has also pledged a big action on climate change, but the exact shape that that action is going to take is still very unclear. The Trump administration famously pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, which commits countries to keeping warming below 2 degrees Celsius in the coming century, and Trump didn't really have much of a, well, he didn't have any policy at all for actually combating climate change. So Trump had at one point said that climate change is a hoax that was invented by China in order to um, harm American business. And all of the environmental regulations that he introduced in his administration were designed to make things easier for businesses who pollute to do so without having to pay the costs of reducing their emissions. Biden has rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement. He's taken the US back in already. But that's only really the very, very first step. In order to actually achieve that target of keeping warming below 2 degrees Celsius in the coming century, a great deal of new domestic legislation and regulation will be needed. So the US economy is going to have to undergo something of a transformation in order to decarbonize. And indeed, Biden has committed the US to decarbonizing its whole economy by 2050 and decarbonizing energy production by 2035. This is another policy area in which Biden can expect to come under a lot of pressure from the left wing of his own party, which has really moved quite quite to the left on this issue over the last four or five years during the Trump presidency. Now, you may have heard of something called the Green New Deal. That's been kind of the main framework through which Democratic Party climate policy has been discussed over the last few years. The Green New Deal was an incredibly ambitious proposal to decarbonize the entire US economy by 2030, and it also involved rolling into this climate change legislation many other progressive policy priorities as well. So as part of the Green New Deal, there was to be a federal jobs guarantee, so every individual in the United States would be entitled to a job funded by the federal government. There'd be free healthcare for everyone in the United States. There'd be free college tuition for everyone in the United States. And there'd be a particular focus on economic redistribution designed to improve the prospects of marginalized communities and particularly communities of color. The political theory behind the Green New Deal was basically that it was necessary to include all of these additional elements which didn't really have anything to do with climate change in order to build a coalition behind measures to combat climate change. So basically to persuade the electorate to go along with what was necessary in terms of transforming the economy, they also had to be offered all of these sweeteners in terms of social programs. The idea of the Green New Deal was successful insofar as it created a slogan and kind of a basis for mobilization that many activists could get behind. But the practical politics of how it was going to work was always really, really unclear. It was never really obvious that taking all of these other controversial issues, like a federal jobs guarantee, like healthcare for all, like free college education, and then adding them to an already very controversial climate change proposal was actually going to make it easier to pass as opposed to more difficult to pass. 
And all of these other things that were included as part of the Green New Deal were priorities for progressives, so people who were already quite likely to sign on to end the Green New Deal in the first place. But these were policies that actually are very, very divisive on the center and, and the right of American politics. And really, when you look at the, you know, the legislative calculus, what's necessary to pass a climate change deal, you see that what's really necessary is, in fact, appealing to the center and to the right wing rather than to progressives who are already, you know, likely to go along with with the legislation anyway. So as we enter the Biden administration, the Green New Deal is really not a possibility. This approach just cannot work with the, the Senate currently made up as it is at the moment. It's going to be very, very difficult to get any sort of climate legislation through the Senate. Getting something like the Green New Deal is just flatly impossible. And in 2009, when Obama was president and Biden was vice president, the House of Representatives passed something that was called the American Clean Energy and Security Act, which would have created a cap-and-trade system. So this is basically where the government taxes carbon emissions, and then that creates an incentive to lower emissions because companies don't want to pay taxes. This bill very narrowly was passed in the House of Representatives, but even though at the time the Democrats controlled the Senate, they had a healthy majority there, they didn't even bring this up for a debate in the Senate. And the reason for that was because there's just so many senators who come from states that produce fossil fuels or come from kind of Republican-leaning, what we call sometimes purple states, which are a little bit red and a little bit blue, and they believed it would really harm their re-election prospects if they voted yes on this bill. So if cap and trade couldn't get through the Senate, then something like the Green New Deal, even 10 years later, really has no chance of doing so. Now, the Biden administration has learned from these past failures. It doesn't seem like the administration is actually going to introduce one big climate bill, but instead that they're going to integrate policies designed to combat climate change with other pieces of legislation. So one example of this is the economic stimulus package that I'm going to discuss in the next segment. This is designed primarily to combat the economic recession that's been caused by the coronavirus, but the administration also plans to include in that package a great deal of investment in green energy and in new infrastructure projects that will use clean energy. So, for instance, one aspect of that might be funding new forms of transportation, so the construction of railways or trams or subways, which are electrified and hence much more energy efficient than having everyone drive around in cars. The passage of infrastructure legislation like this is likely to be much easier than a climate change bill because with infrastructure legislation, senators can get something for their own state. So for instance, you know, if you have a senator like Joe Manchin in West Virginia, he's very often mentioned as one of the most conservative of the Democratic senators. He comes from a state where a lot of people work in fossil fuel industries. He, for instance, has said that he would be willing to support up to a $4 trillion infrastructure package. And the reason for that is because his constituents, the people in his state, would see a very quick, very obvious benefit from having this new infrastructure built. So it's likely that the Biden administration is going to take a much more consensual, much more business-friendly, much more consensus-building approach to this issue than the Green New Deal. 
But at the same time, the administration is going to roll back many of the very permissive regulations that Trump introduced, which make it much easier for American corporations to pollute the water and the air of America. And one of Biden's first acts in office was to revoke the permit that was allowing the construction of what's known as the Keystone XL pipeline, which was a proposed pipeline that was being constructed from Canada down into the US to deliver a large quantity of oil into US refineries. The Keystone XL pipeline had become very symbolic in the debate over climate change in the US, so Trump was very quick to grant this permit when he was in office, and Biden's been equally quick to revoke it, and that's really going to please activists in his own party who really saw the construction of this pipeline as a sign that America was not at all serious about decarbonizing and moving away from fossil fuels. But on the other hand, activists in Biden's party are not likely to be satisfied just with this action. So I think like on immigration, we're going to see a great deal of pressure on Biden from the left on climate change throughout his administration. And we're likely to hear him and the people around him continue to argue that political realities and particularly the very, very closely divided Senate make it difficult for him to pursue ambitious policies in this area. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy, and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. Well, the final thing that I'm going to talk about is the administration's efforts to tackle the coronavirus and rejuvenate the economy. These are obviously the main priorities for the incoming administration, and it's going to take up a lot of time over the coming weeks and months to work on these proposals and try to get them through the closely divided Congress. Biden's already announced the content of his proposed $1.9 trillion fiscal stimulus package, which, as well as aiming to rejuvenate the economy, also contains various measures that are designed to speed up vaccination. So the Trump administration took an incredibly hands-off approach to the vaccination program against coronavirus and indeed to all anti-coronavirus measures. The administration was closely involved in developing vaccines, but beyond that, Trump never really actually set the federal government to work to combat the virus. His general approach to the virus was really to play it down. He clearly saw it as a huge political threat to his administration, and rather than actually trying to neutralize that threat to deal with it, he kind of adopted this strategy of sticking his head in the sand and not really doing that much about it. So he left things like testing and vaccination to the states. This was particularly problematic because not every state was equipped to deal with this problem, especially as the economy was crashing last year, they found their finances and budgets really, really under pressure. So the Biden administration plans to invest um, tens of billions of dollars into national vaccination and testing programs and to expand lab capacity for tests around the country. He also wants to hire 100,000 public health workers, which would nearly triple the number of community health workers in the country. All of this is relatively uncontroversial, but what's more controversial are the economic parts of this plan. So it's very common during a recession that governments pass what's called a fiscal stimulus. The basic point behind this is that during a recession, the economy tends to grind to a halt. People aren't buying things, companies aren't able to find buyers for their products, so they grind to a halt. They start firing their workers because they don't have any customers, and then that means their workers don't have money to buy things with. 
So the economy can easily get locked in this kind of downward spiral of declining activity. The purpose behind a fiscal stimulus is for the government to borrow a load of money and then basically just inject it in the economy in the hope of jump-starting economic activity again. So keeping people in their jobs, keeping consumers with money in their pocket so that they are able to spend it on goods and services, and then that also helps businesses to stay open as well. But then something interesting always happens when these fiscal stimulus bills come before Congress, because basically if the federal government is saying, we have this huge amount of money and we need to spend it on something, the immediately kind of salient question becomes, well, what do you spend the money on? And so these stimulus bills then become a vehicle for the achievement of other goals. So for instance, the last fiscal stimulus that the government passed in December included really, really significant measures um, to tackle climate change. So it rolled tens of billions of dollars into things like renewable energy investment, modernizing the electrical grid, and also funding research into clean energy technologies. So the president and CEO of the World Resources Institute, which is a climate advocacy group, said that this was one of, if not the, the most significant climate bills that Congress had ever passed. And that was just by being part of one of these stimulus packages. You know, the amount of money that was spent on climate in this last stimulus was not that large relative to the overall size of the bill, but it was still able to achieve a lot. So what we're basically witnessing right now is a big debate over what should go in the next stimulus package. Progressives are pushing for the inclusion of lots of measures that they've wanted for a long time. The most significant of these is an increase of the federal minimum wage to $15, which would raise the income of millions and millions of American families. It also includes money to enhance aid to the unemployed and to provide people with rental assistance so that they can avoid being evicted even if they've lost their jobs and also to provide a lot of money to childcare, which is something that people are really struggling with during the pandemic. So it's a very, very big, expansive proposal, and it's already getting a lot of pushback from re Republicans who say that this amount of money doesn't need to be spent, and it doesn't need to be spent on these particular priorities. So the minimum wage is something that especially is getting an awful lot of pushback. Another really controversial part of the package is that it involves sending checks to every single American citizen of $1,400. Now, this is kind of a weird story how this came about. Congress sent a $600 payment to all Americans last year, and then during the election campaign, Trump just suddenly started saying that, oh, this should be $2,000, we should send people more money, in the hope, obviously, that this was going to help win him support. And Democrats then felt the need to also go along with this $2,000 figure. So the idea now is to send an extra $1,400, and if you add that to the $600 they already sent, then that reaches $2,000. This is pretty controversial because actually during the coronavirus and the economic recession that's been happening, most households in America have not actually seen a decline in their income. Some have. Many people have suffered very, very badly. But the average household, and actually the majority of households, have seen a rise in their income during the pandemic, mostly as a result of these earlier payments that were sent and because many people have been able to work from home. So the American economy has been go undergoing what some people have called a K-shaped recovery. So for some people, and this is kind of the, the top tick on the K, things have been getting better. But for people at the bottom and people who aren't able to work from home, people who live in very precarious situations and 
perhaps relied on employment that's been made untenable because of the lockdown. So maybe, for instance, they were bartenders or they were waitresses. They've been experiencing very, very dramatically worsening circumstances. So that's kind of the bottom leg of the K. Now, what Republicans and some economists are arguing as well is that it is correct to send more relief and more aid to people, but this should be more precisely targeted. So if you imagine two families and one of those families, say, are a married couple who are both doctors, they've kept their jobs during the pandemic, they've just been seeing patients on Zoom instead, they haven't seen any drop in their income and they've probably actually seen their disposable income increase because their costs have gone down a lot, right? Because if you can't go to the restaurant, you can't go to the cinema, you have more money. So that's one family that we imagine. Then imagine a second family who were, say, a single mother with three children. She used to work as a bartender. She lost that job. She hasn't been able to find another one because her skills haven't allowed her to do so in this really bad economy. It makes more sense to target money more towards her than it does to the doctors. And that makes sense more actually from a humanitarian perspective, but also from an economic perspective as well, because if the point of this stimulus package is to get it in the hands of those Americans who aren't able to spend money in order to stimulate the economy, it makes sense to target those who have actually lost income as a result of the pandemic. So Biden's already getting a lot of pushback on these two things, the minimum wage and the lack of targeting in the relief money. But he seems to be sticking firm to going for a really large relief package. And one of the reasons for this is that kind of a moment that's really seared in the soul of Democrats is when Obama first came into office in 2009, when the country was undergoing the financial crisis. And then the Obama administration put before Congress a stimulus package, which is kind of broadly agreed now to have been too small. So it really, really didn't get the economy going again to the extent that it was necessary. And this was mostly because Republicans refused to cooperate on having a largest package Mitch McConnell, who was then the, the minority leader in the Senate, the Republican minority leader, got together with his fellow senators and said, our main goal is to make sure that Barack Obama is a one-term president. And that attempt to sabotage the Obama administration extended to not actually funding a stimulus package that was large enough to help the economy. So it's kind of the strategy Republicans have of potentially hurting the economy under a Democratic president so that that president will find it more difficult to get re-elected. This time around, the Biden administration is full of people who lived through that moment and they want to learn from their mistakes. And they've decided that pushing for as big a package as possible is what's needed to, you know, understanding that probably it's going to get watered down on the way through Congress, but it'll end up bigger than it would have been if they'd started at a lower amount. So the opening drama of the Biden administration is really going to be about the fate of this package. On Sunday, there was a conference call between the White House and moderate and some Republican senators. And they got, you know, they gave a lot of pushback against this proposal and they really criticized it on these two points, the minimum wage and the targeting of the relief. So the Biden administration needs to decide what to do. They have potentially two ways of getting this through the Senate. They can try to negotiate with Republicans and then maybe they'll end up with a smaller package. Or if they're able to hold every single Democratic legislator in line, so they have 50 and there are 50 Republicans, but if they can get every single Democratic senator to vote for the $2 trillion package, 
then they will be able to get that through the Senate because there's these strange rules that say that budget bills can be passed with just 50 votes plus the tiebreak of the vice president. So they're not subject to the filibuster. So what the Biden administration does here is really, really going to determine the tone of the administration in its early months. If they negotiate with Republicans and manage to reach a compromise, then that's going to be a sign that going forward, the administration plans to work with Republicans you know, take the approach that having half a loaf is better than no loaf at all and sort of try to meet Republicans in the middle. If they ram this bill through the Senate using the reconciliation process, which is the process that allows them to do it with 50 votes, then that's going to be an early sign that they're not going to really be able to work with Republicans probably on much else during this administration either. So even though this economic stimulus package can seem a little bit arcane and, and you know, not so interesting as, as other policy issues that we often talk about a lot, it's a real, real early test of whether Biden's plan of seeking cooperation with Republicans can work. So that's why we're going to be watching it really closely. All right, so there you have it. The three big policy issues to keep an eye on during the early weeks of the Biden administration. Of course, we'll be talking about all of these things here on America Explained. And please also remember to follow our Facebook feed to see written commentary and articles that we'll share that shed light on these issues going forward. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time. <laughs>